everyone. Welcome to the Raising Kind Humans podcast. I'm your host, Katie Doty. If you're here because you want to raise empathetic kids with the tools to make positive changes in this world, you're in the right place. I'm glad you're here. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Raising Kind Humans. This episode was so fun. I had the honor and the privilege of sitting down with Julie Bogart, author of Raising Critical Thinkers. Her book is fantastic. If you have not grabbed your copy yet, go find it right now. It's so needed and so necessary and something we should all be talking about. Her book, Raising Critical Thinkers, gives you so many concrete steps that you can take with your kids to help them on this journey of becoming critical thinkers. I also love this book so much because I think kindness and critical thinking go hand in hand. If you can imagine what it might be like for someone else, you will be more likely to get involved and to help. This book changed my views on empathy and tolerance and what those mean and what those look like. And I was so grateful for the activities for my own kids. This is a book I will come back to again and again as my kids get older. And I am so grateful that it exists. So this conversation is fire. I hope you enjoy. I hope you get something amazing out of it. Um, So please enjoy and welcome the amazing Julie Bogart. Julie Bogart. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Katie. It's fun to be here. I'm so happy that you said yes. Thank you for saying yes to being here. And thank you for writing this amazing book. It is, it was one that I literally ran out of highlighting ink because every, every line is a mic drop in this book. And it was something that, oh, it was needed and necessary. And the work you put into it, I know is meaningful to so many, so many people. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I'm so glad, you know, when you're working on something alone in your office and there's no readers, you wonder if it's for you or for everybody. And it's really been fun to have a book about critical thinking be well-received. I, I didn't know. I had a couple of friends who were like, well, it can't possibly as, be as popular as your first book because it's, it's a hard topic. But so far, it's really been popular. So I'm grateful. Well, I think it's so needed and there isn't a lot of information out there that directly relates to talking to kids about this. That's true. Yep, it's something that is true. I feel like I have talked to my husband about this all the time, like critical thinking, we need to teach them critical thinking, but how do I do it? And then when I came across this book, I thought, yes, <laughs> thank you. This is Hooray. what I needed. So my question to you is then why did you choose this topic? How did you stumble upon this where you thought, you know what, I'm going to spend hours on this. This is a good idea. (laughs) I love this story, actually. So the origin story of my interest in critical thinking started back in the mid 90s, 1995, six, when the World Wide Web threw open its Mm. doors. And the first people who ran through them, by the way, were homeschoolers. We were all just desperate for contact with people on the other side of the Mississippi, no matter where you lived. Uh, We wanted advice about parenting and diapering and how to have a good park day. And we wanted curriculum recommendations. And, you know, back then, the community I was a part of in homeschooling was quite homogeneous. We were 
mostly married heterosexual white women who were of a religious nature. And we had many, many children. We were stay-at-home mothers. So on the whole, I pretty much expected there'd be a lot of agreement around mm -hmm. any issue that we discussed, or we might have a different birth story, but we were going to be like I knew us to be at park days, friendly, polite, avoid politics and religion kind of thing. And would you believe we got into bloodbaths <laughs> over things like paper diapers versus oh. cloth diapers or bottle feeding or breastfeeding, or you made me feel bad about my C-section because you had a home birth. Like right. the mommy wars really began, yeah. but that was not all. We argued about religion relentlessly. And these are people who largely agreed but the nuances of different denominations and different constructs for baptism and communion and who goes to heaven became like the bedrock of this huge conflict online. I always say, I feel like we invented trolling. We didn't even know we were trolling each other, but we were. Yeah. And so here's what happened for me. I started asking the question, why do each of us think we're right? And why do we assume that if we just declare our right ideas, everybody will fall into line and agree with us? Yeah. Because that's what builds the outrage. It's not the difference of opinion. It's the shock that when I state the truth and I tell you my source, that you don't just fall into line and say, oh, yeah, that's true. That isn't yeah. what happens. So I got interested in that. And uh, that really started a decades long journey. It, landed me in grad school. It made me reevaluate many things in my life. And uh, even when I wrote The Brave Learner, I actually wanted to start with this book. I have notes and outlines all the way back to like 2000. Oh, wow. But um, yeah, my agent was like, that's not your first book. That's your second book. And, uh, and she was right. Uh, so that just gives you a feel for how long I've been interested in this topic. Yeah. Well, I was curious about that because I noticed that this book came out relatively close to your Brave Learner book, which I thought, wow, that's a lot of work to get two books published within a few years of each other. Yes. <laughs> so that's amazing. Yeah. So it's something I've been thinking about and writing about for a long, long time. But of course, I did fresh research when I started and even my own opinions underwent modification. Like I went in with a very technology um, optimistic viewpoint, right? Because I tend to like to be the person who doesn't shame and blame people for loving technology. But even that had to undergo some revision. Um, there really has been a shift in the way our minds process information, in the way that we have attention focus states. And, uh, and that was a really good lesson, even for myself as I'm writing, that critical thinking is ongoing and it's perpetual. It's not something where you draw a conclusion and then it's once and for all, much yeah. to the uh, disappointment of many people. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I liked what you said too in your book is that it's the ability to change your mind, to take mm. in the facts, take in the data, think about right. it and then, and then change your mind. And that's okay that you don't have to stick to one camp. You get to make different choices based on the data that you receive. So why do you think people don't want to change their minds? I think they don't want to be wrong. <laughs> I think they don't want to admit that maybe their thinking was a little flawed and that they are now thinking it a little bit differently. That's hard to admit. Why? What happens to people if they are wrong? Um, I think their fear of being shamed. I feel, I think maybe just being embarrassed or um, wishing they had done it differently. Yeah. 
I mean, those are absolutely true. You have the regret piece. Oh my gosh, if I lived according to these ideas and now they're wrong, I have to face that for a whole bunch of years, I did something that now I'm rejecting. That's very hard for people. Very they hard. really want to affirm their lives. We also have the community dynamic. Mm. If I'm in a homeschooling group, for example, for a decade or more, and then I decide to put my kids in school, I'm on some level rejecting the thing that I dedicated myself to. And all those people that are still homeschooling are no longer going to be able to relate to what I'm doing, even if they're supportive and yeah. they really might not be. But even if they are, they are automatically not going to be in my circle in the same way that they were when we were doing the same thing. So we risk our community memberships whenever yeah. we change our minds. And that has a powerful impact on how we think. Yeah, I understand that because I was a public school teacher for many years and now I'm home homeschooling. And there is this feeling of guilt and did I, you know, just did I abandon the community that I was a part of? Am I still supporting them, but I'm in this new dynamic of life and this is better for my kids? You know, it's been a challenge right. to shift my thinking in that area and, and take all that in. Yes. I, I know, for example, I have a friend um, back when we were first having babies and I had a home birth and she ended up with a cesarean section. Uh, we were both living in um, other countries. She was in Japan. I was in Morocco when we had our kids. And so I remember getting the letter from her prehistoric times. She wrote me a long letter describing her experience and I could feel there was a defensive quality because mm -hmm. my birth had gone so differently from hers. But so, so by the end, she was affirming that this is how she had to have this baby. Fast forward two more years when we're both pregnant again, and she started looking into VBACs. And would you believe she went on to have seven more births and they were all at home. Wow. And so she had to reevaluate what she thought and felt about that first birth. So her first experience of it was to defend it because we all defend our birds. Why wouldn't oh, we? We're so happy to have time. our babies and we're glad we're alive and nobody's dead and everybody's healthy. But then there's a certain point at which you either affirm it and continue or you evaluate it and try something new, which then makes you have to rethink that experience. And I think that's part of what's going on here. We're very attached mm -hmm. to not making mistakes you know, school has taught us that there's one right answer. And so when we get that one right answer, it's really hard to think that, well, actually, maybe there were three right answers. Right. Maybe there's a right answer for this year and a different right answer for the next year. That's hard for people. So yeah, I, I can feel that move from public to home, wanting to support, not belonging, wondering what your friends think of you, also wondering what you think about your own training, the dedication you put into becoming a teacher, that's what makes these things so challenging. Yeah, it's not simple. <laughs> it's not no. simple at all. Yeah. Okay, I really have to dive into what I feel is the absolute mic drop moment of your book. Ooh, Are you ready? I hear what you think. <laughs> I am. That sounds great. Okay, this is what you wrote. You said, what is the skill we need in order to get to know someone who is different? It's not the ability to tolerate them. It's the ability to tolerate our own discomfort. That means noticing our body's reactions, the immediate defensive thoughts, and the stereotypes we generate for self-protection. Self-awareness is key. I'm going <laughs> to give you the floor. This was just one of those, like I had to read it three times <laughs> and I thought, that's it. That 
little shift in thinking of the way that you view, like it's not their difference. It's the way you process their difference. Yes. Yeah. When we talk about tolerance so often, it's with so much condescension. It's like, I'm tolerant of that person I fully disagree with. Absolutely. I won't (laughs) crash her car. I won't stand in the way of her eating in my restaurant. I won't kick her out of my party. And it comes from this. I, I have a great example of it actually happening in my life. I was about to host this um, this Brave Rider retreat, so all homeschoolers. And Brave Rider is uh, it's non um, sectarian, so we welcome people of religious backgrounds, but we also welcome secular people, and we try to hold space for everyone. So when we're doing an event, it leans secular just to mm-hmm. accommodate everyone. So I invited this um, electric slide what do they call that line dancer lady she was going to do line dancing with us and she was from a church that is local to us and so she brought all this christian country music for line dancing and i said to her actually we have a lot of people who are muslim and secular in our group so we would rather you just use you know classic country music that everybody knows it doesn't have a religious nature and here's what she said this is a perfect example she said oh, I don't have a problem with any Muslims or secular people dancing with us. That is perfectly acceptable. I can tolerate that. And I said, that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you not to use your music to accommodate them. And then she said, wait, what? They won't be okay with me using my Christian music? And I was like, there it is, right? She couldn't imagine that what I was asking her to do is be uncomfortable for the sake of other people. She was saying she would be okay with them being different. And I think that is the the issue we see all the time. Like, I'll be okay with you being different and I'll sort of, you know, pat you on the head. Right. So what's your advice then for parents in, in getting them to help their kids see that and practice that? I know you talk a lot about um, like identity and self-awareness and where you come from and um, who you are, how you're seen by your community. So you practice, you practice at home with your children because they are the first beings that are so radically different from you (laughs) and you see them every day. So in other words, you quit dismissing them. You tolerate their dissent and the upset it creates in you. You know, if you've got a six-year-old who doesn't want to wash his hands before dinner, you don't double down on the parental propaganda program. Yeah. You actually pause and notice oh, I'm uncomfortable with this idea that we don't wash hands before dinner. Why am I uncomfortable with that? And then start interrogating your own thoughts and being curious about your child's. Is the child upset because the water is cold or hot? Does the child hate wet hands? Is the child like, I just ate Cheerios off the floor. Why (laughs) do I have to, you know, and you weren't upset about that. So is this logical, Um, right? I mean, how many of us, have been in Target, the baby spits out the pacifier. We pick it up from the dirty floor of Target. We lick it off with our own mouths. And we pop it back in our baby's mouth as though that's hygienic. You speak the truth. Right. So do we actually interrogate our own beliefs when somebody challenges them? Or do we just go into tolerance for them not agreeing with us? Or worse, coercion, which is what we do with our kids. We just coerce accommodation of our beliefs. And we call it good parenting, obedience, all the stuff that's 
actually toxic and they have to recover from in therapy years later. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and it's true. I think I like what you're saying there and opening the dialogue with the child and finding out the why. And I think that's something I've been learning as a parent is you had a big reaction about something. What is happening? Why is that occurring? Is it something like you said, is it too hot? Is it too cold? What is it that you don't like the texture of the water? You don't like right. to be wet. What is the problem that you're facing and how can we work through this <laughs> together? That's right. It's their why, not your why. Cause I have a lot of yeah. parents who will say, well, I explain about the germs and I was like, but is that what the issue is at stake? And if we fast forward that into the teen years, you know, right now there are a lot of families dealing with kids who are going through identity changes, significant ones, non-binary, trans, whatever. Yeah. How will you respond to that moment? Will you oh. pat them on the head with sort of this like, I'm superior to you, but I'll tolerate you in spite of how I feel about it? Will you be a parent who's curious about the journey? Will you be a parent who's interested in why this is occurring? Uh Will you be able to tolerate your own discomfort with how this disrupts the fantasy you had about your child? Yeah. And, I, and I'm not telling you to change your beliefs. I want to be very clear about this. There is a difference between tolerating your discomfort and abandoning your beliefs. But when we are talking about human beings that we are relating to, your beliefs are not a good reason for exclusion. They're not. Right and on. so when you are with a human being, no matter, and I'm talking about some extremes, some people that you really don't like, you know, KKK members, like some people that we all agree. Yeah, I don't like that group. Our job is to be curious enough to understand what constitutes that worldview for that person. Why is that important? Because when we don't understand, we make assumptions and we create projections and the solutions we create do not fix the problem. They usually minimize, humiliate, control, whatever. They don't actually address root causes. They don't deal with the substance of why a person might be a racist. So it's not to say that we endorse racism. It's what is this surfacing? in the culture and for us that has gone unaccounted for in these dialogues. You're so eloquent in the way that you present it, present this information that's just like, yes, that makes sense to me. Amazing. <laughs> this complicated mm. topic, but you're right. It's your ability to tolerate discomfort and ask questions. Yes. Find out yeah. why. That, that boils it down beautifully. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about empathy. Like you do not have to draw the conclusion that, oh, that poor soul. You can be more horrified the more you dig in. You know, when I read about child molestation, I don't come out with a lot of empathy, despite the fact that I might be able to trace back that this molester had been molested X, Y, Z, right? You can tell a, a, a woe is me story, but it doesn't make me less horrified. I'm right. still horrified. But I might understand the whole complexity of this story differently if I'm actually able to tolerate my discomfort. And sometimes, you know, what, what ends up happening is that when we then go to make a solution, whether it's at the micro level in the family or it's the macro level at the political and social scale, we are including more points of view. 
Right. The more points of view we include, the better the solution, because we're accounting for more people's experiences. It's beautiful. That's exactly what it is. And the more people that are aware of this and can start practicing this and asking questions and diving in and opening up for more information and more data and more representation, we can, we can start tackling some of these problems right. that we're faced with. Exactly. Exactly. And the problems can be practiced at home. You know, I was on an interview recently and I was saying, you know, my generation just write us off. We're too old. We're not going to change. Uh, we, we spent too much time without the internet. We don't know what we're doing. Uh, so don't worry about us. But you can actually start this revolution at home. Yeah. And it starts parent to child. It doesn't start with you indoctrinating your children with another yet another worldview. It starts with tolerating dissent from mm. your children when they do not align with whatever you think the family values are. Can you do it every day? No. Some days you just got to tie their shoes, get them buckled into the car seat and go to Target. But if you can every now and then, you know, once or twice a month, actually go down the rabbit hole with one of your kids, tolerate their, I don't want to, mm -hmm. and find out more about it and notice what's happening in you, how yeah. annoyed you are, how disruptive to your system this is, and yet still be curious. You'll be training yourself how to yeah. do this. I love that too, because I think the more we practice that with our kids, the more we model that for our children, the more likely they will keep coming back to us knowing mom might not like this, but I know that I get to talk this through with her that's and being true. available. That is true. I, I had one important. mom, she has uh, four kids and she wrote to me, this is probably 15, 20 years ago. Now she wrote to me and she said, Julie, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm struggling with my kids. Um, and at long email. So I said, well, why don't you call me and we'll discuss it. So here was the gist of her complaint. She said she had four strong-willed children that she had worked out this really wonderful design for homeschool. She <laughs> knew what the plan should be each day. And they just kept foiling it, kicking mm -hmm. each other, tickling each other, not doing the work, crying, complaining, all of it. And she said, our lives would be so much better if they would just cooperate with the plan. So I said back to her, do you actually believe that? Would their lives be better if they cooperated with the plan? She said, yes, they just won't do it. I said, well, let's pause and ask that question again. If their lives would be better cooperating with the plan, wouldn't they have done it already? <laughs> and she paused. And I said, is there any chance that their mother is strong-willed? Is there any chance that the strong-willed party in this group of five is you? Because you're describing four people, but actually there's only one person trying to enforce one vision on five people, four other people, which had never occurred to her. And I said, the truth is your kids know what makes them happy. And it's not this plan, no matter how unhappy that makes you. So now we got to scrap the plan and we have to start over with your happiness and their happiness, all as part of the decision-making. This isn't you enforcing your happiness on them. Yeah, that's what's difficult for us, right? We, we feel best when people align and affirm what we think is right and true. And we're not that willing to wrestle with the fact that our design for life isn't necessarily as easily received by other people.
Exactly. That's definitely something I've been dealing with homeschooling coming from a public school background. Oh yeah. I very much know the rules of the classroom <laughs> and trying to replicate that in your home doesn't work. I found nope. <laughs> um, there were times when I, I finally just sat down with my oldest and I said, what do you want? What do you want this to look like? And we started, you know, coming up with a better solution and a better plan. And now we're kind of in a better groove, but it's hard to give up what you believe is the best way to do it. Right. Hear the opinions of the children and what they think would best suit them. So, yes. I understand. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you are still a parent and you have years of wisdom and experience and responsibilities that they cannot appreciate yet. Even more reason to care, even right. more reason to care, because if all those things are true and your children truly cannot appreciate them, then you're expecting them to rise to a level of maturity they don't have yet. And of the two, who's mo more mature, the parent? Who has more responsibility to make a life good for their children? You do. Your yeah. kid's job isn't to make your life easier. It's for you to make theirs better and easier. So that is a real pivot for a lot of parents. It's just that shift in thinking, which reminds me of, um, I want to talk about this concept with you and it's a mouthful, asymmetrical reciprocity. Did I say my, it correctly? <laughs> you did. It's my favorite concept in the whole book. Oh my gosh. This really shifted my thought process on empathy. And it made me think about being in the classroom, being a parent. There are so many conflicts that I have to deal with. And um, I used to use the language, what, how, do you, how do you think you would feel if you got hit in the head with a stick or whatever yes. it was? And it would backfire on me. And they would be like, well, I wouldn't care because it wouldn't hurt that bad. Or, you know, I wouldn't. Right. Have, yeah, it doesn't bother me. And I had to start shifting the way that I talk to them or use language around it to be more like, okay, look at their face right now. How are they feeling right now? What do you think maybe you should do or you could do to help this situation or help them feel better? And I really appreciated Beautiful. this part of the book because it was like, oh, there's a, there's a name for that. And yes. it's a shift that's simple, but I think we need to get it out. We need to tell people about this, you know, and how you talk to your children about empathy. Oh my gosh. I, same. So when I was writing this book, I consulted with a friend of mine who is a curriculum director at Penn State. And uh, I reached out to him because we used to have these really great conversations online back in the day. And I was like, Drew, I am thinking about thinking. And here's this one dialogue we had on my blog. And I'm trying to remember what it was related to. But this concept seemed really key to me. And he says, oh, it's Iris Marion Young. And uh, she has this concept called asymmetrical reciprocity. And so I bought her book, Intersecting Voices. And basically what the research shows is that this idea, you worded it so simply and so beautifully, this idea that if I put myself in your shoes, I'll come up with the same conclusion of experience that you're having is false. So right. when we say, well, put yourself in her place or walk a mile in their shoes, not possible. What we end up doing is projecting the current version of ourselves into their experience and then very frequently denying their experience. Yep. And you hear this in political stuff all the time. Well, if I was a worker for Amazon, I'd be grateful because, right? A person yep. who's never worked at Amazon, right? Or, well, I wouldn't get a divorce over that reason. 
a person who's never been in that circumstance in marriage, and they just assume they could overcome it. Right. So asymmetrical reciprocity is admitting that the experience of another person is actually unknowable to you. And so our job is to be curious and allow for that person to define their experience and then for us to receive it, yeah. to be like, wow, okay, that's how it is for you. How do I account for that in the solution we're trying to achieve? How do I account for how real that is for you? Um, the example in my book that I took from uh, Iris Marion Young's work happened in Oregon. They had uh, an... Oregon, for those of you who don't know, especially if you're an international listener, that state has really great medical care for their residents. So there was on the docket in the 1990s um, a set of medical procedures that were going to be made available to the population, but they were deciding whether to make them available to people who were disabled as well as able-bodied people. Right. So they did a phone survey, and it was mostly of able-bodied people. And the majority of those people said this kind of comment. Oh, if I was blind, I'd rather be dead. Yeah. If I was in a wheelchair, I would rather not be alive. And they took that data and drew the conclusion that people who are disabled don't really like living or care about life. And these medical procedures, therefore, would not be of benefit to them. So they didn't offer them. Oh, my gosh. Now, yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> right. It sounds so obvious when yeah. you just read it. But that's literally what happened. And then the American Disabilities Act, they took it to court and overruled it because there is this requirement that they offer the same services to able-bodied and disabled. But what Iris Young concluded was it was the failure of the imagination because mm. able-bodied people who had never been disabled couldn't imagine what that felt like. So they assumed from this position that it wouldn't be worth living. Ironically, statistically, disabled people have a much lower rate of suicide than able-bodied people. So just think even about that mind-blowing statistic. Um, and it wasn't until I broke my ankle in 2017 and I was confined to a wheelchair for about six months that I even understood that the disabled have very unequal access despite the ADA requiring access. And I had a whole different perspective just by being in a chair than what I thought I knew about being in a chair before I was in one. And mine was only for six months. So yeah. when you think about just that full range, right, of experience and counter, asymmetrical reciprocity is acknowledging that unless I've actually lived that experience, been a refugee, been an immigrant, have been divorced or disabled or had leukemia, I can't really speak for you. Right. My imagination can't go that far. Right. It's such an interesting concept. And when I read it, I was just so excited to dive into what, what else you had to say about it. And speaking of your um, being in the wheelchair and encounter, let's talk about experience and encounter. I was giggling. At, I mean, you have very funny moments in your book. It's very entertaining. But I was, I was giggling at your, um, when you traveled to East Germany oh, <laughs> and, you, yes. and you stepped out and you were like, oh my gosh, the sun is shining here. That's not what I've seen, you know, when I see that. And it made me think about this one time I traveled to Australia with my husband and we got to go in the outback and do this beautiful stargazing. And, and the, we, there was an astrologer there pointing stuff out and he pointed out the Southern cross. And I was like, 
what is the Southern Cross? I have never seen these stars before. And my mind was blown. I'm embarrassed about this because I was an adult, but my mind was blown because in my world, I couldn't see the Southern Cross. And I assumed it didn't exist, right? So encounter (laughs) completely shifted my thinking, but yes, what's your thoughts on this? Oh no, that's so good. That's a perfect illustration. You know, it's sort of like when people say they went to Australia and the water went down the wrong way, or I went to Britain and I drove on the wrong side of the road, right? It's this orientation that we have that the way I do things, think about things, behave, is natural and normal Mm -hmm. and everything else is other and strange and therefore less legitimate or possibly doesn't even exist. Right. The Southern cross. (laughs) Yeah. It can't be sunny in East Germany. They're communists, right? right? (laughs) Live in gray drab environments. There's no sunshine, right? These are irrational concepts. Um, I remember when I wrote the book, the woman who wrote the foreword for me, Barb Oakley, she's a, a brain scientist and So she vetted my book and she spent five years in Moscow during the USSR time. So when she got to my East Germany part, she kind of ripped me a new one. She called me and we talked for an hour and a half. She's like, nobody cares, Julie, about the weather in East Germany. This is a communist country. And um, yeah, we all know the sun shines there. And I was like, okay, I have to rewrite that section. I'm not (laughs) getting my point across. So I explained to her again, I said, well, what I'm trying to show is the irrationality of my construct. Right. And, and her point was sort of, actually the evil empire language was accurate. <laughs> like oh, was <laughs> <laughs> it was a bad place, Julie, make it sound better. Um, oh my goodness. But, but that was an interesting moment because she was coming from the USSR from the seventies, from heavy duty cold war. I was there at the tail end of communism with the residual memory. I mean, it was 84, 83. So Um, It wasn't gone yet. It ended in 89. But I was feeling the impact of all that language so deeply that it led me to even have a weather reaction. And that was really the only point of that story. So when we're looking at things, it's not to say you can't judge them, but it's also to say how shaped we are by the narratives Mm -hmm. that we're given in our culture as though they are routinely accurate and they account for all. And they don't, they don't. They don't. And you touch on this beautifully about representation in education and Mm. um, kind of giving the call of like, look at your bookshelves. What do your kids see when they thumb through the pages of the books? Do they see themselves? Do they only see themselves? Do they see other people, other types of living? Um, And I think that's one powerful way to help families kind of shift their thinking and education is who are they seeing? You know, what is represented in your education and how can you change it or, or add to it um, to give more of an experience and, you know, representation. I love that you brought that up. Um, that doesn't come up often enough in my podcast interviews, honestly, but that is such a key feature. Back in the 1990s, I was trying to break into writing children's picture books. And I wrote a book about Morocco because I had lived there and I had this experience. Uh, and they all, the one of the publishers almost bought it. And then they ended up not purchasing it and publishing a different book about Morocco by someone who had grown up in the Middle East. And this was mm-hmm. sort of mid to late 90s. In the 1990s, there was this big move towards multiculturalism in publishing. And it was this desire to represent a global 
worldview, like lots of other cultures from lots of other countries. So I was sort of at the tail end of, maybe not the tail end, I'm sure it's still happening, but going into the 2000s, white writers mm. writing about other cultures. And the person they picked over me was someone more adjacent to that culture than I was. Today, we're seeing an absolute revolution in publishing. They are finally recognizing that writing about is not the same as writing from that point right. of view. And so when we talk about representation, part of it is, yeah, read a book with the main characters being from Peru. But wouldn't it be even better if the author was Peruvian writing about those characters? Right. And of course, there's mixture here. I, there's a big debate right around fiction writers. Can't we inhabit anybody? Isn't that the role of being a fiction writer? Yes. But we need to correct sort of decades, centuries, honestly, of white writers having mm -hmm. the dominance. And now we want to recognize, you know, global global voices and we have access in a way we never used to and translations are so possible. Um, yeah. In fact, most of the educators that I consulted for this book about critical thinking were not white. Yeah. They were coming from these sort of um, education reform perspectives because they were representing communities that have not been served by the dominant educational models designed for Western whites. So that's yeah. also another, another way to think about all this is where are you getting your information? Is it always consistently from people who are like you? Right. Or are you allowing yourself to be spoken to? Maybe you aren't ready to be influenced by other people, but at least welcoming them to the table of your mind so right. that their ideas are a factor in your thinking. I love that. And I love what you said about reading in, in your book. Um, you talk a lot about reading and deep reading and how reading is a safe place to learn versus scrolling <laughs> and getting all of this information, but deep reading and really sitting with the author and allowing the information to just settle without having to make a decision or make a choice about what you believe to be true. You don't have to argue them. You don't have to prove your point. You just get to consume let it be. And then, you know, make some choices after that. I appreciated that so much because it's so true and so important. So how do you think we can work that into teaching our kids deep reading versus what you see on the internet and responding to that? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's really interesting. My son, Jacob just moved to Central African Republic. Uh, he's a UN peacekeeping officer there. And one of the things that he discovered, he left Bangkok, Thailand, where he had been for five years, which is highly technologically advanced. They've got, you know, Wi-Fi and data, everything everywhere. And then he moved to Carr, and he just told me that the entire country doesn't have Wi-Fi. Wow. The entire country. The whole country. The whole country. It's a big country. Go get your globe. You'll see. It's a massive country. They have cell towers for data, but they have no way to do Wi-Fi. So everybody uses their data to run their computers, but he doesn't have that access where he lives. There's no way that his phone doesn't work at his home. So he's been just reading books at night. Mm. He has no internet access, so he can't watch movies, can't do anything. And I said, oh my gosh, it's like 1985 all over again, right? right? Like when I lived in Africa, uh, I, that's all I did was read books. I had no television, no telephone. There was no internet yet. Obviously it was 1980s. But one of the things he was saying is that it had been a really long time since he could just sustain that much reading. Mm -hmm. It takes practice and it takes putting away access to the internet to do it. Right. You know, so in his case, he's like literally forced to. 
but you can force yourselves every now and then treat it like exercise, right? We still have cars. We're not just going to say, well, cars ruined our ability to exercise. Oh, well, right. You know, we are, and we're not going to get rid of our cars and walk to the store. That's silly, but we could take up running or CrossFit or yoga. We could go cycling. We could use Nordic track, whatever works for you. Go to the Y same for deep reading. Yeah. We want you to set aside 10, 15 minutes a day, whole family reads at the same time, put all the cell phones in a basket and stick them upstairs where you can't see them. You know, when you're on a diet, you don't leave the potato chips on the counter. You put right. them in the cupboard where you can't see them. Yes. And then you give yourself the joy of uninterrupted reading. Here's what I notice about me. My mind squirrels for the first five to eight minutes. I'm like, oh my gosh, and I'm antsy and I don't want to stop moving. And I, I have even tried to swipe on the page, thinking, yeah. you know, right? Like you're just so <laughs> in the habit. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, especially at my age, I'm like, I cannot read this. It's too small and not bright enough. Um, but then it's really weird. There will be a moment where I settle in and then I don't want to leave. Mm-hmm. I actually love sort of the break from the rush of scrolling information. And our kids, at least I have a memory of it. A lot of our kids don't have a memory of it because they're born into this environment. Yeah. So creating that together, and I think it's important that you do it at the same time because if you do it just for your kids, it feels like you're punishing them. Right. You do it as a family, it becomes a practice that is important for them to learn what that feels like. Well, and you're modeling for them too. You're showing them, this is important to me too. Let's sit down and do this together. Look at the joy that I'm getting out of this and the joy that you can get out of this too. And showing them how to do it. That's right. They're watching. They're always watching. (laughs) Right. And they do silent reading in school. Like schools have this as a practice. A lot of classrooms do. Homeschoolers do so much reading aloud that -hmm. sometimes they forget that there is value in silent reading. Um, My mom had a rule when I was a kid that I could stay up as late as I wanted, as long as I was reading. So I used to fall asleep with books on my chest all the time. That's the kind of thing you can also practice with your kids. Give them a stack of books, let them read until they fall asleep. That is also, I feel like the gift of homeschooling right now is not having that intense schedule that you, you have to get up really early in the morning. So you need to go to bed. And I've offered this gift basically to my daughter who loves reading now, and she will stay up super late devouring books. And I'm curious, I would love to know if, if that was not an option, would she still be the avid reader that she is? I don't know. It's a good question. But it does give kids a way to sort of have that delicious privacy. You know, they're Mm -hmm. already tired. They're in their beds. They aren't distracted. The lights are low. You know, sometimes we forget. Uh, I have a son who was particularly into watching birds. And Mm. so I would try to do writing with him during the day. And I could not get him to stop looking out the window. It was like... (laughs) His little mind was like, oh, there's a pigeon. Oh, there's a titmouse. Oh, there's a house sparrow, you know, and he's just constantly pinging. And one day I thought, oh, we need to do this at night when the birds can't be seen. Smart. So we just start doing writing at night. It's homeschool, right? It was like, oh, now his mind is quiet. He can't look out the window. So like, think about that. You have so much freedom as a home educator. Not yeah. everything's a discipline issue. Most of the no. time it's just logistical. 
It really is. I, I'm definitely learning that as I go, that it is, it's just figuring out the sweet spot. Yes. Where do you learn best? What time do you learn best? Right. What way do you learn best? My daughter is very hands-on. She wants to do it for herself. She doesn't want to sit and be taught something. It has to be natural. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So definitely taking those into consideration when you're teaching your kids. Yeah. And I think we have like some big misconceptions too. Like, well, if they play a lot of computer games, they'll never learn how to read a book. This same bird watching son, he was my biggest gamer. He could game, he could game all night when he was in high school. I mean, he just absolutely loved video games. And then he's the one who chose to go to St. John's College in Annapolis, which is a great books program. He has read the most tedious tomes. I mean, he's read Kant's Escape from Pure Reason. He's read all of Aristotle and Plato. And, you know, he actually can yeah. read these very dense, very long books. And yet he was my biggest gamer. Yeah. So a lot of times we make connections, we make assumptions that are not true. And he will tell you that the way he learned to read lengthy was through comic books. He used to oh, get all these comic books and poetry books and keep them on the side of his bed, these very small chunks. And he would try to commit to memory poetry and he would read mm -hmm. comic books obsessively and eventually became, I would say, the most profound reader of the family. You don't know where all this is going and we want to stop making assumptions. Well, gosh, if he reads comics, will he ever read a full-length book? Sure. Follow right. the journey. Stay current with your child. Yeah. Yes. And and I think it's trusting the process. Yes. It's hard not to know the outcome and True. not knowing if this is going to work, <laughs> but giving them the space and the freedom to try things on their own. And maybe she doesn't pick up a book for a week. Maybe she tries something different, but it's okay that we will get there in the end. Oh, that is completely true. My oldest son, who's 35 and has two kids now, so he's a full grown up. But he would tell you, I mean, he was a massive reader as a young person. Now he's a computer programmer. You know, they read to their kids all the time. This is not his season of life for full length novels and, and lengthy tomes. Mm -hmm. So he's more of a read articles, read Substack. You know, that's where he gets his information. So even looking at your own adult life and the way you've undulated in your consumption of information and materials can be a guide to how you're raising your kids mm -hmm. so that you don't become so easily panicked, right? By what you see today. Each season of life has a different burden. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> it's so true. And it changes quickly. You never it know. It's, it's just, it comes and goes pretty quickly. You have to enjoy the moment and where you're at. I wanted to ask you about imagination. You were, you were talking a little bit about it um, earlier, but can you make the link between imagination and critical thinking and the importance of pretend play. <laughs> oh my gosh, I would love to. So if we think back to when our kids were really young, they're so likely to try on dress up clothes, to pretend to be a superhero, to act out their favorite fairy tale. And uh, they start and stop in the middle of stories. They don't need a beginning, middle and an end. Mm -hmm. uh, they play because it feels really good to pretend to be that perspective. And when they're in that role, they don't think it says anything about how they actually are, right? So right. if your child is pretending to be Robin Hood, your child isn't worried that you now think that child is a thief. Right. They're like, well, I'm just being Robin Hood. And then when I'm not Robin Hood, I'm not Robin Hood, so I'm not a thief, right? So what happens is school begins at six, seven, eight, 
And kids start being taught this right answer thinking. Their, yeah. their imaginations are not invited in to how to learn. They are being given sort of content to master. And they've done studies that prove that by sixth grade, that early stage imagination of early childhood is actually been extinguished, yeah. which I find just like horrifying. Heart-wrenching. Um, yeah. yeah, heart-wrenching. Meanwhile, kids who stay in the arts, kids who are in theater, kids who um, are, are artists in drawing yeah. and painting, they stay connected to their imaginations and they continue to learn that you can inhabit an idea or a perspective without it meaning anything about you. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in theater in high school, I was performing roles. I was not those people. Right. But by inhabiting those characters, I actually felt what it might feel like to be that person with that background. And it expanded sort of my uh, understanding of other human beings. So where I would like our parents to go with their children is to include this notion of role-playing in critical thinking, that when you are trying to understand arguments, what would it be like mm -hmm. to be cast as that character or to imagine? Now, we talked before about asymmetrical reciprocity as a way to recognize I can never fully understand, right. but imagination can aid you in at least noticing what are all the component pieces of this discussion that I might be ignoring. I remember doing an activity with students in one of our writing classes where we just started with the images they associate with a hot button social issue. Mm. So we started with homeschooling because they were all homeschoolers. So I asked questions. Okay, where is this taking place? In a house. How many people are there? Five. What color is their skin? White. What are their religious beliefs? Christian. They just start filling it in. Then we start asking more questions. Can people homeschool in a place that's not a house? Oh, well, yeah, I guess an apartment, maybe a condo. Okay. Yeah. Could they homeschool in a homeless shelter? Oh, I, I actually don't know the answer to that question. Could they homeschool in a yurt? What's a yurt? Uh, <laughs> yes. What other people besides white Christians homeschool? Oh, there's another whole group to consider. You know, are all the parents married? Are there people who homeschool who aren't parents? And you start using your imagination to expand the category of what you're talking about as a way to dig into the issue at a scale that you initially ignored because you didn't yeah. even know to ask those questions. So right. for me, that's the rhetorical imagination. It's the capacity to expand, to include additional experiences, data, facts, um, frames of reference that are germane to whatever that topic is. Oh, it's just beautiful. And I love the correlation because having young kids, they are always in pretend play at this current moment. And sometimes I need them to stop being a dog, but I need to also give permission to let them be in their worlds and yes. do the imaginative thinking and processing and, and collaborating on how they're going to be in this pretend world together. And it's taken me a while to let go of okay, but we need to be doing this and mm. saying, this is the work. This pretend play that they are immersed in right now is the work that they need to be doing and giving myself permission to let them be. <laughs> and it's okay. It's good for them. So yeah, I and, appreciated that. And also just remember, like, so you've got a kid who only wants to be a dog, but you're supposed to be working on math. 
I mean, how much math can you do with a dog? A lot. <laughs> there's the food True. that has to be measured. There's the number of bones they're going to chew. There's the ounces of water they're going to drink. There's the number of feet they're going to crawl like a dog. There's the amplification of their voice when they bark. Can it be measured? You know, like so much. Sometimes we forget because we have a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. We're so set on what we think school is, and we've actually lost the theme, which is learning. Right. So I always say to parents, when you have a child who's resistant, they're not resistant to learning. They're resistant to the system you're using for learning. So our job as the mature person, as the adult in the room is to take the responsibility to make learning interesting. Right. That is actually your only job. And I always found that if I take my cues from my kids, we got so much further. I remember this this one time I felt like, you know, I mean, I'm a writing instructor. So I was like, eh, we haven't done a lot of writing in the last little bit. So we got stuck, I think, studying ancient Egyptian history for way too long because they were Mm. so fascinated by mummies and pyramids and the whole nine yards. And I was getting a little frustrated. And that day I went out to the mailbox to get the mail. And this is like still before websites were as big as they are now. The internet existed, but not everybody went there yet. Mm-hmm. And so Apple used to send out a catalog called Mac Mall, and you could just page through it for computers, et cetera. So our copy of Mac Mall arrived that day and I put it on the table and immediately Noah, who was our tech kid, starts paging through it. And just like that, I was like, should we make a mail order catalog for ancient Egypt? Oh, I just love like it. that. And they were like, Yes. And I realized that my oldest two kids could collaborate on this project. So it would be a lot less boring. Right. Right. So the next thing, you know, they're doing artwork and they have all these like potions and, and they're using, they're using the Mac mall catalog for like verbiage. So it's very markety. Kids are great with marketing language. Um, But then we assembled the whole thing. And then we all went down to the local um, copy photocopy store and had it printed multiple copies and bound. And I actually put that activity in our program partnership writing, but I wanted to share the story of it because that's what I'm talking about with imagination. It's giving yourself permission to think beyond, well, they haven't written a long time and make them write a paragraph to actually like, well, where are they showing interest? Oh, there's a couple of things happening here. I wonder how I can weave these together. And it has to be authentic. If it's authentic, they're in. That's what I have been learning is if it's something that they are like, this makes sense in my world. This is a great idea, mom. (laughs) Totally, totally. And they get excited at that point, you know, Mm -hmm. and then you can also feel it like a wave. Yeah. It kind of goes through. Right. And one of the things that I like to tell parents all the time is that kids learn in writing anyway, through a series of writing projects. So not every single one has to be copied over or edited. You don't have to finish everything you start. Maybe the only thing they were learning in this project is generating the idea. Yes. And their energy fades and you're like, well, at least they generated an idea. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Done. Check. We can check that off. (laughs) So next time I'll see if we can go one step further, right? Or we'll pull this one back out now that they're ready and we'll try revising without having to generate any ideas because it's already written. Like giving yourself that freedom, your own imagination to challenge your assumptions about learning. That's the great place to start. And as you do that, then you start to get more excited when your kids 
bring up challenges because yes. you're like, oh, this could go a good place. Yes. And yeah. And the possibilities of where this will take them and how far can they go with it? I right. love that. You know, you talk about, you know, giving choice and, and excitement and what are they interested in? And that's something I'm trying to do with community service for kids is love taking it. their passions, taking their interests. How do you turn that into serving others um, in a way that's interesting to them? Yes. So can you find a correlation between critical thinking practices, maybe through experiences or encounters and community service and serving and connecting to your community? Oh, for sure. I think that's so such a valuable, um, a valuable connection, actually. One of the benefits of having your kids be out in the community or aware that there are needs in your community is that they start to expand their imaginations mm -hmm. to include people who are different. Yes. And so there are two things I want to say about this. One is that's valuable all by itself. So for years, um, when we attended this one church, they used to give us donuts on uh, Christmas Eve. And then we would stop, everybody in the church would stop by like the fire department or the police department oh. and take donuts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so even after we stopped going to that church, we continued to do it as a family tradition. And so it can be something very simple and just kind of generous like that. Yep. But it can also be something more systematic. Johanna uh, volunteered for a number of years at a school when she was in high school because mm -hmm. she was homeschooled uh, as a teaching assistant. So she yes. got to know what that experience was like. Um, it, Jacob and Johanna both ran the Amnesty International Club at the high school and then again at Ohio State. So there can be those very official kinds mm -hmm. of work. And then there can be this sort of serendipitous but the main thing to do is to not guilt your kids into it. Absolutely. It's best if you lead by example. Mm -hmm. You're the kind of person, you know, we volunteered as ushers at our local Shakespeare community. And the next thing you know, all of our kids wanted to do that as well. That's the way in. The way in is the way on is what we always say. And leading okay. by example is probably the best way to go with community service. It's perfectly said because that's that's kind of the debate um, that I'm researching right now is if you force kids into community service, you know, you have to do the 50 hours to graduate oh. versus kind of teaching them at a younger age what it feels like internally to give back and how yes. you can do it based on what you're interested in. Will they be more likely in the future to continue wanting to participate versus, well, I was forced to do this. I'm done. I don't have to do it again. That's so true. And you know, these values, they come through different vehicles. Like, remember we drove home one time, it was the fall, we live in Ohio. So we have huge, huge trees in my neighborhood. And there's this one house, and uh, I can see from here, um, that has a very tall tree. And it was one older woman who lived there. She's now gone, she moved on. But while she lived there, we had seen her for years dealing with mowing her own lawn and mm. raking these leaves. And so one day we were driving home and she was clearly not home. And one of the kids in my car said, hey, we should we should rake her leaves, oh. which blew me away. Thanks. So we all got out. We raked her entire yard and then we all decided not to tell her that we had done it. Oh, I love it. So we decided it would be a secret just in our family. And we saw her come home and we saw her kind of stand in the yard, and then just go in the house. I'm sure she's wondering what happened and who did it. And they were just tickled. So that's very different than like community service, but it mm -hmm. was local and lovely. Um, and then we had other extremes. Like I had three kids become vegans. 
mm. aligning their behavior with their beliefs about ethical right. treatment of animals. That's another, you know, and I had a lot of friends tell me, oh, don't let your kids do that. That's so inconvenient. They don't really mean it, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But to me, it was like, oh, well, here's a chance for my kids to feel what it's like to have a belief and align their behavior. So Absolutely. we're going to support that. So it can come in varieties of ways is what I wanted to say. You don't just have to volunteer for the Red Cross. You perfectly said that because that is kind of where my mission is going is trying to flip the narrative on what community service looks like. It doesn't mean picking up trash on the side of the road. It can, and that's right. great, but it's also breaking your neighbor's leaves without telling them, bringing that's donuts right. to the fire station or thinking of someone outside of yourself. It's yes, any service to me is community service. And so I love it. I'm, I'm happy that you brought that up because I really believe in starting to curate these different activities for kids so that they can see there are so many ways to serve and you don't have to be that. a certain age or a certain height or a certain time frame. It can be in your home. It could be for your neighbor or something different. So beautifully that's said. Be that's beautiful. Yeah. And I think starting at home is really the place, right? Mm -hmm. And noticing you know, when you notice a generous act between siblings, actually noticing and making the name comment. it, mm -hmm. name it. Yep. Mm -hmm. I love that you're thinking about that. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That, oh, Julie, this has just been so <laughs> fantastic. It has exceeded my wildest dreams and I'm so oh, grateful <laughs> that I got to sit down and talk with you because I think what you give to your community is just endless love and encouragement and support. And I know that if I need anything, I can look for you. I'll look through your emails. I'll look through your Instagram and I will get that validation that I am looking for. So I really, really do appreciate the energy and the time that oh. you put into everything. Well, thank you. Thank you for hosting me on your platform and for sharing the work of raising critical thinkers. It's a it's a work of passion. So I love getting it out there and you are a delight. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, tell everyone, where can we find you? What else do you want us to know? Tell us all the details. Okay. Uh, yeah. So Raising Critical Thinkers is available on its own book website, raisingcriticalthinkers.com. And uh, there is a download that is free for those of you who want to read it in a book club setting. I mm -hmm. think the idea of reading in a group is really powerful because these ideas thrive from conversation. So there's that. I have another book called The Brave Learner, which is fantastic for homeschoolers. And it's, oh my gosh, it's just done incredibly well. So apparently people like it. And that has its own book website too, thebravelearner.com. And it has a, a journal download for free. Um, bravewriter.com is my company. That's where we teach you language arts writing. And we are adding um, some online writing classes for history. This year, we've added math to our youngest uh, literacy program. Yeah. So we're expanding into some new areas. Check that out. And then I run my own Instagram account. Uh, Julie Brave Writer is my handle. So if you want to, you know, meet me there, I will be happy to get to know you. <laughs> Which I highly recommend. Um, you also have a podcast. Oh, I do. I always forget <laughs> to mention it, but yeah, it's called Brave Writer and uh, it's a super fun podcast. I can never quite decide exactly what it is. So uh, it I don't think you have to. Guessing. Yeah, I love it because you're you're innovative and you're coming up with new ideas. And I love your new to is it Tuesdays? 
Tea oh, with Julie. Tea with Julie. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I yeah. love that. Just pop oh, you good. in my ear and I get a little inspiration for the Perfect. day and then I get to move on. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love hearing that because that's exactly what I'm actually meeting with my podcast producer about. We're just talking about how long they should be, one or two, blah, blah, blah. So, oh, fantastic. I welcome all the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this has just been lovely. Thank you again. And I look forward to seeing all the wonderful things that you're doing. Thank you, Katie. Okay. Was that not amazing? Is she not the best? I hope you really enjoyed this episode as much as I loved sitting down and talking with Julie Bogart. If this resonated with you, if you feel like this is information that other people might be interested in, or you have a friend that might really love this episode, will you please send it to them? Please share it. And we can continue this conversation about raising critical thinkers. Thanks for being here.